You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years thereof. It's coming. First, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. And now, Emeritus Rex. 40 years to know of this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Rubey, Yeshua Pupko, Coat St. Luke's premier synagogue. Rabbi Pupko, I asked you off pod, what are, what are the Long Bomer plans for Beth Israel Beth Aaron? And you told me. I told you that Lug Bomer is the domain of drug-addled mystics. <laughs> I'm not sure which drug, but yeah, mystics, yes. But, but come on. I mean, there are Lon Bomer events in, in many, many synagogues, even those that don't really have a connection to Hohmasasod. I'm old, I'm bitter, and uh, I'm cynical. I'm cantankerous, crotchety. So I, I'm not the best guy to talk mis- to. Mis- misanthropic. Like a von killer. Um, yeah. Should I keep on going? You're doing fine. I, I'll let you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, yes. So, What am I supposed to do in Lugbar? I get a haircut. <laughs> we forgot about your shining pate. <laughs> yeah, I, I get a haircut. I don't say Tachana. Other than that, there's not much going on in my life. Sure, of course, but we know, look, without getting into a history lesson of, of mysticism, we know that through the or and in the understanding of what happens on Roshim uh day of death and the reports from the Arizal, by the time we get to the uh, you know 18th century, we, we realize that there is a mystical tradition that has been built. And around that mystical tradition, as we know from what happens, and of course we talked about Marone, but even before the, that period, what gathered around that circle of mysticism, as you say, was a fun time, a sense of enjoyment of life. And I, I would even say, Ralph, that one could make the argument that part of why Kabbalah was popular wasn't because it opened you up to, like Grant says, to all these primitive ghosts and spirits and made you sort of a, 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 abandon your free will to these other powers. It really was vis-a-vis philosophy, a more life-affirming take on the world. As I mentioned earlier, I don't know if I mentioned this, I'm a bitter, cynical man. Yes. I, and I don't mean this in any way disparage Kabbalah, but I say some people who are attracted to it are attracted to it because it doesn't take any brains. In other words, it's a series of declarative statements. This is this. This is that Svira. This is this emanation. This is that. 
It's, it's, the, it's a series of declarative statements. It's not critical analysis. I think in any Torah discussion, there's certain givens that you can't question because as, as we learned from the, the Brewsters are the ultimate uh, a paragon of that, right? The state. This is Adina, so you can't really, even in many Talmud discussions, there's certain, you, the Muslim Sidrash, there's certain things you can't say. What means anything. We don't go that way. If you have the two branches, philosophy versus Kabbalah, philosophy demands, and we, if we take the Rambam and others as uh, the great spokesman for a philosophical uh, approach to Judaism, then this is very important being able to realize that the body is, in a way, your enemy that you have to overcome, because as the Rambam says, the body imparts such limitations to your perception that you're just waiting for you, for you to get the hell out of that body, and eventually, as a soul, a soul that's an intellectual being, be able to have vistas that are unbound and be part of the world of ideas. That That's the philosophical view of Olam Abad. The, the Kabbalistic view, however, talks about working with this body and altering it, changing it, and ultimately it, it shares in the Tzchiyas uh, Amesim. Yeah, no, there's no question that the fusion of Kabbalah with Hasidus, and I'm not sure fusion is the best word, maybe fusion, which implies connectedness, it makes it even too distant, as if they were ever separate. But yes. the fusion of Hasidus and Kabbalah certainly emphasize those parts of Kabbalah which were very life-affirming. No question. I, I couldn't agree more. The purpose of philosophy and the purpose of Kabbalah are the same in that they're there to answer the big questions. So if you ask a, yes. a philosopher, if God is all good and God is all knowing and God is all powerful, why is there evil in the world? The philosopher will have a very, you know, complex Profound philosophical response to that question, not, and not necessarily, not necessarily satisfying. Uh, not, no, not necessarily satisfying, but they'll have an answer or an approach. Kabbalah is a series of answers without questions. In other words, Kabbalah never says, "Well, if God is all good and God is all powerful and God is all knowing, why is there evil?" But instead, what Kabbalah will do is provide a kabbalistic answer. In other words, what do they answer? They say, "Ah." Oh, there was a country, there was Simpson, and then there were Spheros Akalim, and then there were Nitsisis, right? That's how they will answer the presence of evil in the world, right? Meaning that evil is not truly evil. Meaning that there is, in a way, a, a purpose for you to be confronting by this. Right, but they will answer the question. The purpose of the Spheros Akalim and everything else in Simpson. The purpose of that is to answer the question, how is there evil in the world, or why is there evil in the world? And, and why is it so strong, and why is there Yetzirah so, so powerful? Philosophers begin with a question. Kabbalah doesn't begin with a question. That doesn't mean the questions weren't there. Of course. It, 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 it does present the system, and it does demand, and I think the Rambam would have said that is too, that when you start studying philosophy, you need to shut up and listen for a couple of months or years before you're ready to actually join the debate. Right. And I think the true philosophers knew that it takes a long time to sort of like change the human in a way that he's a listener and an understander. And as the Rambam himself says, sometimes he needs to do calisthenics like math and science and other things right. that sort of ready his mind to think in an abstract way. Now, Kabbalah also demands certain religious 
uh, qualifications for really entering into the capitalist world. But it doesn't demand world. thought. No, I, I don't, I'm not telling you that the originators of Kabbalah weren't deep and profound thinkers. What I'm telling you is that their formulation of their eschatology, right, the formulation of it leads to mindless embrace of imagery without nuance. Oh, yeah, okay, there was Simpson, then there was this, then there was that. It answers the question, and it seals the question. Philosophy never seals the question, right? Philosophy triggers the ongoing profound search for wisdom and the elusive search for truth and all of that. I think you do a disservice by saying there's no nuance. Okay, all right, I'll grant you nuance, but you can't tell me that it doesn't seal the conversation. Once I hear Shvir Sekalem and, and everything else, what is there left for me to think about? Well, what, what's left perhaps you can think about is your place and what your uh, missionists are, your purpose, maybe even figuring right. out what the show but is. Intellectually, is. intellectually, the conversation's over. You still are going to use your brain. In other words, Kabbalists have to many times juggle some of the most uh, intense and weird contradictory ideas. And it isn't just mouthing them like a parrot. Let me talk about the thing which, in many ways, I think still binds us, other than our crazy high school hijinks, which is our love of, of the Akamasha. And Akamasha, right. your brother, uh, introduced me to Rav And right. we know Rav as as a, a Talmud of the Ishbit was right. was very much into this antinomian double truth, where everything becomes good and evil really changes so, again, I don't consider it unnuanced. You just have to know how to apply it. Many people, I think, if they are confronted by the Pritzadik or any of Ratzadik Svarim, are somewhat taken aback. They sort of can't figure it out. Is everything everything? Everything is the best kind of everything else? You almost got, right? you almost get into the sense that you can answer any question by like a, like a Rubik's cube, moving the pins up. What Ratzadik does, I don't know, and, and again, I defer to you, I mean, on this subject, but it seems to me what Rapsodic does is he harnesses the energy and the ideas of Kabbalah, but he takes it in a in a very deep and profound philosophical way. What Rapsodic did was he repackaged the essence of Ishbis Chassidus in a, in a lavush that everyone could hold on to it, and he sort of hides some of the wilder parts of things. Right, like, right, yes. Everybody... Everybody knows that the Ishmael's statements all about Pinchas and Zimri, that Zimri was really right. Yeah, Pinchas the Kanoi was really right. I mean, there are things, and, and which is also based no, there are on, things which are which are a little close to you know Sabbatian. The Sabbateans were definitely into the body and into overcoming the body, and, and actually sort of extolling the fact that they were living in a world that was already mistukan, that was misukan already, and therefore they could engage at least the holiest ones, like Shabsay Tzvi, you know, in you know, in shagging, uh, you know, people like like, like he did on Asar Davis, whatever it was right. that he was going to do. I mean, the the, the idea of a Vera Lishma. Yes, right. It's something that could happen, and, and and again, there's enough capitalistic illusions how evil changed. And that evil is ultimately find the shtarosh of good. And as Rav consistently says, based on his Rebbe Ishbitzer, the, the what will happen in the Messianic age will realize that everything was possible, and all our averus, including the ones, the sexual ones, were really 
be all for something positive. And every where we came to, it had to happen specifically this way. I mean, Rasonic is quite repetitive in that fashion. And you're right, I could see a, a you know a rational a rational curmudgeon, I could see a rational curmudgeon saying, I don't buy it. But that's why I threw Rapsodic in your face. because I- I'll tell you a funny story. I was in, I was in Lublin one night, and uh, it was around midnight. I was with my son, Avi, and another guy, Berber, great guys. And it was midnight, and we were in Lublin. We had visited the old cemetery in Lublin that day where the, where the, the Chayza, my is buried, and other great figures in Jewish life. And we figure we want to go to the new cemetery, which isn't that new. And Polish, the Nova Sabotage, the new cemetery. So we get a Polish cab driver to take us to the cemetery in the middle of the night, midnight, and expecting really not much. We didn't know. We had never been there before. We pull up to the cemetery around midnight, dark night in Lublin, and these two huge great days come bursting out of the darkness Parking at <laughs> behind the gate, thank God. And the light go on in a little house that's the office of the cemetery. A guy comes out, greets us as if it's two in the afternoon, gets the dogs under control, brings in the office, and there's a whole record there. Anyway, there's no graves in the cemetery. It was all plowed over by the Nazis, except he tells us there's an oil all the way at the end. And we walk and we walk and we walk and we walk and we walk, a very long walk. We get to the oil. The oil is the oil of Rapsodic and uh, Rabbi Kivager's son. Um, Rabbi Blager. It's Rabbi Blager's grandson. Grandson, yes. I'm an immigrant, yeah. And Rabbi Blager and Rapsodic. And uh, we go in there. Somebody had left Sitkos Tzadik in the oil that you could learn while you were there. And it was astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. Rapsodic, we know 80% of what he wrote we lost, from what I understand. That's the story. But when they found him after he died, you know, they found papers everywhere. And, yeah. you know, sort of like Max Brod and Kafka, you know, the editors had to, like, assemble uh, what he had left. But I mean, he incredible was, I mean, stuff. He wrote, on, he, wrote, he wrote on every scrap of paper he could find. Yeah, yeah. He wrote it, it, was, it was incredible. And Sonic, I mean, I, I am very grateful that because of people like my brother, like brother you mentioned, so so warmly because of people like him, Rapsodic is much better known today than he was, I think, 50 years ago, I think. Put it this way, he's always, he's, Rapsodic's Lavush that I mentioned, how he enclosed those ideas, have so much cops. There's Galatiana Lundis in there of right. connecting one Gemara to another. There's a Bikias that, that's off the wall. There's also, there's also history. There's, there's, right? I mean, he was, he wrote a whole safer that was meant to really set the record straight on the Tanoyim from the Amaroyim. We don't, we don't have it all. So Rav Tzodik has so much, he's so rich, his, his mind was so fertile. I had spoken at, at Rav Tzodik's yard side, and again, I, it was a tremendous close for me because you know your brother turned me on to Rav Tzodik. Yeah. But if, if, if you look at his truvis and the Tzveris, the Tzveris are are really voluminous in, in, in terms of the, the sources that he brings. So he, he really, and as you say, it's all from Saviad. And in many ways, you're right, his, his son shone extremely brighter after his death. I, I was also in Ishbitz. In Ishbitz, there was one grave in Ishbitz, and that's the Ishbitz's grave. And when we were by the Ishbitz, I was there with my son, son Avi also. I remember Avi standing 
by the grave of the Yishbitzer trying to explain the things you just said about the Yishbitzer to a group of young people who were very far from Jewish life and Jewish literacy. And it is very hard to do. He pulled it off. But um, yeah. but the ideas are so radical that they can be very easily misunderstood or taken too far. Yeah. Well, there's no question about it that this break by the Kotzker and Yishbitzer, it was extremely important. And I think that, um, you know, after the Ishmitzer died, there was the Kotzker was still alive, and the Kotzker actually sent out messengers to bring Rav Label Eger back and Rav Sodek back if they if they wanted to come back to him. Um, because when the Kotzker was alive, he sort of saw the Ishmitzer as his heir apparent, but the Ishmitzer had his own way of looking at things. Of course, this is you know they talk about the Shari Fofma of Tuf Reish, and the Zohar it says that 1840 was this. Uh, incredible moment of the gates of wisdom opening up. And every single chassidus applies it to them. They say it's when the Semachetic from Lubach also was a tremendous guy. It's when he started saying my Maren. They say it's when the Ishbitzer started saying things was in Tav Reish. Uh, it was also, of course, a very important year in terms of the European nationalism, as you know, uh, in terms of changing the, of what's always happening and all the different things. So there's a lot of looking in this way, I believe, that Sodek and, and went with the Ishbitzer, um could have been the Kotzker's project, but instead, the Kotzker found another person to fill the Ishbitzer's role, and that was the Avni Nezer. And the Avni Nezer becomes, in a way, the ultimate heir, where everybody quotes him, his shuvas are Neskabel, the whole truth of Yisrael. Right. I'll just say one little vignette about this. Um, you know, obviously, the boy of Ram Bornstein was 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 an Ely start out. Um but the Kutzker said uh, before he even had him as a as a son in law, he said to his his father um, the good Ezo of Nochum, don't let him study Hasidim this yet. Don't let him study uh Sifri Said, give him Shas, place him, and you'll see. He he might be behind his friends now but when he he eventually enters into it, he will shine magnificently. The Ishbitzer is a, is a tragedy in a way, and and I think the Amnesir, and then of course as you're of course familiar with his son, the Shem Mishmul, which is another sefer which has got as tremendous popularity yes. outside of outside of the Cedar's world. Okay, but I think all of this talk that we're talking about, uh, we talk about Lag Boyim. You know, I, I still believe there's a lot of merrymaking. There's baseball games, there's stuff going on. Off pod, you were you asked me this question that I really believe that kids were going out with bows and arrows, and you said that you found in what book was it that you saw? Actually that- I made a mistake when I mentioned to you earlier. It wasn't in the Safer Z current. I, I the Isker book. It was in a a book written by a a fellow who ended up living in California, writing about his childhood in pre war town now. And he was writing about the cheder he went to and what they used to do on Lag Baimer. And he said he wrote there that he would go out with his friends with bows and arrows in the in the forest around Tarnow. Yeah. Well, look, if I would want to be a skeptic, I would say, in, especially in those parts of Europe, this was, it had started to get warm fine. So right. this was a, a chance to use this day to go out and give the kids. Right. It was the summer, beginning of summer. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But it was one day off. And there was enough of a, of, of a hook. To hang it on, right? Uh, and bows and arrows, I, as a, you know, I think it's probably connected 
thematically to the idea of Shem Yochai and the Keshet was not shown in his lifetime. There's something about that arc that I think, in a way, perhaps is a symbol. We know that uh, it's also a remez, of course, to procreation and other things. So the idea of the bow and arrow, you know, and letting the kids shoot arrows, I mean, it sounds strange. I mean, it sounds strange to our ears. You know, Chabad, of course, has turned Lan Balimer into a day that they can, you know, right. have parties. And they sort of, again, let's, let's give them credit. They beat everybody to the punch here in America. They had parades. Um, they had a circus-like atmosphere. And I think almost in any place, any city where Chabad has certain strength, Montreal, I'm sure included, there's going to be a big event on the Lan Balimer that Chabad. Right. Now, what's happened, I think, interestingly, in cities that Chassidim have moved into, and by the way, there's plenty of them around Phoenix, and, and, as I speak, and many other hamlets throughout America. Right. And what goes on like Weimar? So they have come up with the Hadloka. They do the, they do the Hadloka on the Lagbomer night. Huge bonfires, and, and that, I think, has uh, you know spread. You don't, I'm sure you have that in Montreal as well. We mentioned before about what happens in Eretz Yisrael, but that's the, that seems to be the other chastig. They have the bonfire, and people come to see. Look, people need spectacle, and I guess you know there's nothing wrong with with with, with the day that we can talk about stuff. You know, let's talk about um, you know Shemrei Yachai's yard site. Let's talk about some uh, somebody who died last week, and I'm sure he was not a Jew, and his songs aren't necessarily Jewish. But it got me thinking about Canada, and whenever I think about Canada, I think about you. I think about you as the sort of a Canadian representative. I'm the embodiment of, of the best of Canada, yes. And I was thinking about uh, Gordon Lightfoot, who died the other day, 84 years old, and, and the songs that he wrote, and, and how it was, as we say, Spence Canadian. You know, Canada is always going to be somewhat, I, I think, secondary to the U.S., and his songs are, are in a way, especially, you know, some of them, they deal with the way a Canadian looks at America. Yeah, I, I think about the, especially you know about the song called "Black Day in July," where you know, he comments on what was happening in Detroit. You know, like you know all you know all the cities that are near the Canadian border, and he talked about you know because probably Canadians were all getting American TV, and Gordon Lightfoot was watching the riots that were happening there in 1967, where the city was basically burned down. Downtown Detroit for years, as you know, was a was a wasteland. Uh, they've 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 rebuilt it. It's really become something a little bit different. And 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 he writes very powerful lyrics in a way. He's he's not burdened by 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 Dylan's gravelly voice. You you mentioned to me something that that Dylan had said that you found uh, almost shocking. I was shocked to read how how, uh, how how Bob Dylan has through the years and and since his death has praised Gordon Lightfoot. I mean, he said he never wrote a bad song and. I, I was shocked to hear that because I, I grew up in America and Gordon Lightfoot was just kind of like, I don't know, it was like, it was like Parv, you know, it was like, there's not much there. So I actually disagree. Um, you know, you, you could compare him to Dan Fogelberg, who I think is. All right. I don't mind that. But when I think of Canadian rockers, I think, you know, the, uh, to me, the greatest Canadian rocker was Neil Young. Right. Who, again, well, Neil becomes, Young, I say. Yeah. Yeah, he becomes connected to you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who are American, right? Yeah, but, you know, uh, Neil Young is fantastic. But, uh, by the way, Bachman Turner Overdrive are Canadians. The two Bachman brothers died this year, and no one seemed to care. Yeah, I think Lightfoot 
the Canadian perspective, the two songs that, that I went and looked up the lyrics. First of all, Dylan, I guess you hear the lyrics more because you say, I can't listen to that voice because, you know, you know, he, he, he sounds like my grandmother with a chest cold, right? I um, love, love Dylan. I always love Dylan. I always yeah, okay, but but part of it, so therefore you can hear the poetry in, in the way in his line reading. I think because Gordon Lightfoot has, has a much sweeter, richer, deeper voice, you, the lyrics somehow get lost. It's 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 sort of a it's sort of a uh, it's counterintuitive, but I think it's true. I think the worse the voice, the more you're hearing the words. The better the voice, the more it blends with the music and the guitar playing. And you sort of, you, you remember the refrain. So I went back and looked at the lyrics and I saw that, you know, the, you know, Black Day in July, it could have been written yesterday about, you know, about George Floyd. It, it has a, 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 it's almost like a, it's an anthem. It's a protest anthem. Greatest song ever written was by Dylan. It ain't me, babe. I mean, that's a great song. Go away from my window. Go at your own. Chosen speech. I'm not the one you want, babe. I'm not the one you need. Okay, so, you know, I, I see there's a difference here. It ain't me, babe. Okay, no, uh, here's the difference. No, you see, no, it ain't me, babe. It ain't you seem me. to grab the songs that are supposedly about universal relationships between men and women. I actually like Dylan's song about a hard rain is going to fall. Harvey's going to fall. It's like, you know, it's like he's in a fever dream. He's on LSD or something. And, he's, and he has these images in his head and he's telling you about them. And they, and, and it's like, wow, what does that mean? Like, who is he, what's he talking about? And it's, it's fascinating. I think it was Gordon Lightfoot is, he, he was a great lyricist. I guess I can understand why Dylan liked him. The, the lyrics to um, Black Day in July, again, are as relevant as they were today. And I think even the, the Edmund Fitzgerald lyrics, can you allow us to should I sing a couple, a little bit of Edmund Fitzgerald? We have a six and a half minute song that, you know, it, it goes through in great detail about 29 people who died uh, in this, uh, this, this, it was a, it was a freighter that was taking steel uh, from Wisconsin to Cleveland. And it was, I guess, in Canadian waters as it was tra- traveling and it, it goes down. And, you know, when, Lightfoot hears about it. He says, I'm going to research the hell out of this song and I'm going to write a song. And, and believe me, these, the, the people who are, you know, the, the relatives of the people who died, they, they have such a carousel uh, to Lightfoot in a way. Yes, I'm, sure you know, they I'm, do. I'm not, I don't think a legend lives on from the chip on down of the big lake they call Gichigumi. <laughs> right? is never gives up her dead. When the skies of November, yes, with a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. The good ship and true was the bone to be chewed. Isn't that a great line? The good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. The ship was the pride of the American side coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most, with a crew and good captain, well-seasoned, doesn't have to rhyme, concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland, <laughs> seasoned in Cleveland. It may be the only time <laughs> the music appears in a rock song. Yeah, well, Cleveland is the home of the rock and roll hall of fame. But right, th- th- that this is a rock song is incredible. 
When supper time came. Yeah, go ahead. It's supper time came. The old cook. Go ahead. Like saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. At 7 p.m., a main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know you. The cap, the captain wired in. He had water coming in, and the good shipping crew was in barrel. And later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So even that rhyme, peril and Fitzgerald, it's like, you know, he gets <laughs> away with it. Now, here's the part that always spoke to me. I didn't know all the words, but whenever I thought of this song, and it came out in 1976, whenever I thought of it, this song, what spoke to me was these lines. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? And and of course, because I, I, I wasn't on a ship where the waves were turning minutes to hours, but we were hiding, you know, from ten or whatever it was, right? Whatever we were doing, whenever you're in a scared situation, like where's the love of God when when things are going bad? When they're right? so, we, does anyone know where the love of God goes? The searchers all say they have made Whitefish Bay. If they put fifteen more miles behind her, they might have split up or they might have capsized. They may have broke deep and took water. Here's the great line: and all that remains is the faces and the names. Of the wives and the sons and the daughters. Anyway, it's incredible how that song has lasted. And and you care. And somehow you are transported to that tragedy. And somehow it rings for you. We talked about the bell ringing 29 times in the Maritime Church in Detroit, right? Yeah. And the bell ringing 29 times for every person. You know, you got to make it. got to be talented and somehow strike something. There's something about the music and the electronic equipment that he used at the time that the made it his, his most popular song. I really, again, I see him as this Canadian who was looking at, at, at the world. The other Canadian, of course, we have to mention here, Montreal's uh, native son, Leonard Cohen. Now, did you, when you were in, in Montreal, did you ever cross paths? Did you ever see Leonard Cohen? Did you ever go to oh. his concerts or anything? He was a wonderful Jew. He was, he's very loved in the community. A lot of people have very uh, deep and profound personal connections to him. He's celebrated by English and French Quebec alike. You know, he's, he's probably the most popular Jew in Quebec. <laughs> he really is. And, uh, no, he's greatly loved and a source of pride. Right. And, and he actually had somewhat of a, uh, of a traditional upbringing. He oh, was absolutely. not. You know what a I mean, Dylan. Dylan, you know, out there in Minnesota was really, you know, he, he didn't really have a, a Jewish training at all. You know, he spent a little time, of course, Dylan in Yeshiva and, and Shariyoshim, you know, but you know, Leonard Cohen for years, people would say, you think Dylan's great? You should hear of Leonard Cohen. Listen, he went to Israel during the 73 war. There's a whole book written about it by Monty Friedman. He was a good Jew, Leonard Cohen. Yes. Good Jew yes, through yes. and through. And right. His and, songs and, are infused with a Jewish sensibility. No question. Yeah, look, and I'll t- we'll talk about his, his most covered song, the song everyone knows him for. In a second, I just want to point out that Dylan, despite him having a song about Israel, you know, that Israel was, you know, he has a song about defending Israel. He did do that. But you know, he also embraced Jesus and uh, oh, he no, was a, he he a black period. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Cohen, on the other hand, as you say, stayed connected to Judaism. Let's talk about the song that I used to use as when I taught high school. I used to use Hallelujah to teach Sefer Shul. Sefer Shul, of course, has okay. David and Bachev. And of course, Leonard Cohen is, is referencing them about, you right. know, seeing, you know, I saw you, you know, 
naked on the roof, you know, taking a bath, right? You know, and clearly, you know, the the king, um, as he talks about the king, the singing, I forgot what term he uses, but the king is shouting out, which of course is Domina Melech from Sefer Tillich. So really, it really is a, a musical way to think about Domina Melech, a flawed, perhaps in some ways, person uh, showing love, re- having a connection with, with a, a source greater than yourself. And the song, Hallelujah, has been covered by so many people. And it's really made its way into a lot of shuls, a lot of, I would say, yeah. more modern shuls, are using that song for uh, for L'chadodi and other things. It's, 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 you know, Phil Broth was very bitter that they gave Dylan the Nobel Prize. Yes. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. But we know that, that Roth was unmatched. I, I, by the end of his life, it was clear that even people like John Updike really didn't measure up to the type of cogent uh, oh, prose power that Roth was able to marshal. And Roth never, he didn't get the Focal Prize, but they gave him a prize to do it. It was right. like, you know, based on, based on what? His, his, his songs. It, listen, I, it's an open question, but what will people think of Roth in a hundred years? I, I agree with you. His brilliance is unmatched. Even Zuckerman on Bow, that stuff was great. All of it was great. I I love Sabbath. And, and I would re- I would recommend to our listeners, by the way, I do not like the miniseries that 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 Showtime or whoever it was yeah. made on the Plot Against America. I thought it was it was overly political. They, they, yeah, they but the Plot Against America is, a, is such a sweet, beautiful book about you know it imagines a a, a, a nightmare, but the way he recreates 1930s Newark. And oh, what fantastic! Here was you know, you no, know. he he was, uh, and he was he was careful, and he was well researched, and he knew what he was talking about. He he was he was a very hardworking writer. Besides being a very, I have, to, I have to tell you, when I read through the twenty pages of American Pastoral that talks about how they would die the dye industry in New Jersey, I now understood the Gemaras in Shabbos. Right. Uh, why do you don't go to the person? <laughs> it stinks, it smells, it takes hours, you have to go back and forth. Yeah, I read Roth. Now I know Pshat. No, I know. Yeah. No, he was so good, Roth. He was so... So, anyway. so you're saying you think in a, a hundred years, people will see him as a like as a relic. So I don't know. I don't like know. It's, it's an open question. Well, again, this really gets us into what's happening with, you know, with the woke world. I mean, Huckleberry Finn needs to probably have three pages of cellophane wrapper around right. it with warnings on it about how you can't, you know, how it's going to be different. Maybe songs, you know, maybe that's really in a way the difference. You know, a song or poetry, unless it's so apparent, can somehow last and be reinterpreted for new generations. It's harder to do that when you have a slice of life uh, about, you know, uh, about about Hub Finn on the Mississippi with Jim and the dialects that are used there. It's hard to make the type of universal themes that, that will play in the year 2023. Maybe people will have that same thing with Roth. I mean, Roth did did throw himself into, and the human stain, as you know, was his sort of racism book. As you right. remember, it was yes, about uh, a professor who was called Coleman Silk. Who right, was a who passed man. his wife, yeah. He was a black man who people thought was just a dark-skinned Jew. And... and and, and it, he had this fictional life about himself. And I think that's, you know, I, I'm not sure if people are going to look at that as, as something classic, but, well, my friends, that's about it. They should, they, 
Leonard and maybe Gordon can get into the back door from this from the Chassidim and just remember, jam it ain't me, babe. <laughs> no, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking. All I can say is we will definitely be back next week, and the answers, my friend, will be blowing, blowing in the wind. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.